if she'd said, I'm praying about Just Stop Oil or bird welfare, she wouldn't have been arrested. She was arrested when she admitted to them she was praying broadly about the issue of abortion, silently in her own mind. And so that, that then is thought crime territory for the first time in our, in our modern history. It's quite extraordinary. Today on British Thought Leaders, I sit down with Ryan Christopher, director of ADF UK, a faith-based legal advocacy organisation that defends fundamental freedoms. ADF UK has recently been involved in legally representing people who were arrested for silently praying in censorship zones. I'm Lee Hall and this is British Thought Leaders. Ryan Christopher, thank you for joining us on British Thought Leaders. My pleasure. Can you tell us a bit about your organisation and what you do? Yeah, um, I'm part of the Alliance Defending Freedom. Um, ultimately, we're a global ministry, um, one of the biggest ministries in the world um, that does legal advocacy, um, defending the fundamental freedoms of all people. Um, I think a lot of people, in colloquial terms, would understand us to be something like a human rights organisation. But I'll say from the off, that, you know, what human rights are now is a highly contested concept. Particular rights have changed in practice through laws or through the courts uh, over the last 20 years. And so the language of fundamental freedoms is, is a, a much more apt language. Um, and that's because we're a Christian ministry as well. Um, and so that means we believe that there are fundamental freedoms that predate any laws that built into creation, um, that every person's right um, simply because they're a, they're a human being. Um, fundamental freedoms like freedom to speak, um, freedom to practice your religion, um, parental rights to educate your children according to your values, the right to have a life from conception to natural death. Um, all of these kind of fundamental freedoms that may or may not be recognised in laws or human rights um, we're going to defend, and, and that's what we exist to do. Um, and we do that in, in three ways. Um, we advocate in the courtroom. So some people may have seen some of our cases. Um, the, the UK charity, ADF UK, that I'm director of, um, we've recently had some around thought crime that I know we're going to discuss. So we defend people in court when we think it's strategic to do so. Um, we work with legislators, civil servants to tackle the root causes of some of the laws that cause problems and interfere with people's fundamental freedoms. And we do a lot of training too. Um, we believe that there's, there's going to be no um, good pathway for the West without a whole generation of young leaders being formed in what was best about the West, what is good about our um, patrimony, our history, um, so that we can continue um, yeah, down, that, down that path. Thank you. So diving into some of the, the specific issues mm. you're working on, uh, Isabel Vaughan Spruce is a charity volunteer who was arrested again recently for silently praying near an abortion facility. Yeah. Uh, you've been very involved in supporting her. Yeah. Could you bring our viewers up to date on what's happened so far? Yeah, so Isabel Vaughan Spruce is, um, she's been a volunteer helping to run a witness and vigils outside abortion facilities in Birmingham for 20 years. She's done that peacefully and she's got numerous women that testify to the life-changing help that she and other volunteers have given. Um, it can be practical support in time of, times of crisis pregnancy. It can be because women have been coerced into abortion that they don't want to have. 
um, yeah, and and so um, all of a sudden, Isabel found that the local council, via primary legislation, had gained the power to criminalise certain behaviours. Um, they passed a public spaces protection order, they're called, um, sometimes called buffer zones. We call them censorship zones for reasons that should become clear, um, that prevented, um, at least on the face of it, um, Isabel and other people doing what they used to do outside the abortion facility. The reason given was to prevent harassment of women. Uh, and what we've seen from the evidence that, that we've dug into as an organisation and the Home Office formal review in 2018 on this matter found that actually incidents of genuine harassment were, were rare to, to non-existent. Um, what this boiled down to was the local council and the local, local facility providers not wanting the presence of anyone that could be perceived in any way to not approve of all the decisions that might be made in that space from existing, even if they might be helping women in a way that those women otherwise wouldn't get, which is quite extraordinary when the mantra is to be pro-choice. Um, I, I find that quite ironic and, and deeply sad. And so Isabel felt with this criminalization of presence, in effect, coming in, um, presence interpreted as protest, according to the local order, that she, in conscience, had to oppose a law that is absolutely unjust on the face of it and unreasonable, violates our liberal traditions, our democratic traditions, our traditions around speech and, and expression, and also about charitable help being a normal course of events on our public streets. But more than that, it risks being a stretching into the, the realm of thought crime too. And that's because um, when Isabel continued to have presence there more recently and she was then arrested, she wasn't arrested for the fact that she stood there silently. She was allowed to do that. Um, she was arrested specifically because um, the contents of her mind were in part in relation to abortion, the issue of abortion. So, so the police asked her, what are you thinking? And she honestly responded. Yeah. The police knew that they were not in a position to arrest her or charge her on the basis of her standing there silently, um, or that they shouldn't. Again, that doesn't often stop the authorities from intervening in that way. If she'd said, I'm praying about Just Stop Oil or bird welfare, she wouldn't have been arrested. She was arrested when she admitted to them she was praying broadly about the issue of abortion, silently in her own mind. and so. That, that then is thought crime territory for the first time in our, in our modern history. It's quite extraordinary. But you've said you're engaging in prayer, which is the offence. No, but you are still engaging in prayer. It is an offence. Okay, then. Um, we contended that still that, that doesn't satisfy the wording of the local order, which is supposed to be all about actions that constitute protest. And what Isabel said to the police in both of her arrests was, I'm not protesting right now. That's not what I'm doing. I'm stood here silently praying for people in my mind. The police wanted to, inter to interpret that as protest. People that don't like what Isabel believes want, want to interpret that as protest. And uh, on the basis of... Um, a lack of evidence, her first arrest and charges were dropped. Um, but as you've mentioned, she was arrested only a few days ago, again, for exactly the same activity. And we don't know on what basis the, those charges will, will be brought. So, 
it'll be um, it'll be a, a month or two before the latest developments of Isabel is clear um, as to where it goes. In the House of Commons, they passed a, a bill to uh, criminalise forms of influence mm. in these uh, buffer zones. Mm. So influence being silent prayer and also consensual conversations. Mm. So this, as, as you've mentioned, brings in this concept of thought crimes, this kind of horribly Orwellian concept. What does this mean for our, our fundamental freedoms? You're not allowed to think certain things. Yeah, I think... Um we're hitting that, that tipping point where people talk about, and I think this will come up a couple of times today, um, people talk about us being in a post-liberal age. And, and I think what happened in the House of Commons uh, this week it is a great illustrative example of are we at that tipping point. In a, in, a, in a liberal order, it would never be accepted as proportionate to remove presence, remove silent prayer, remove people offering charitable help with accurate information. So, you know, ac the, the offer of accurate information is effectively criminalised with, with the way that this bill has gone. That No liberal order would see that as a proportionate removal of fundamental freedoms, both for people giving that help and people receiving, wanting to receive that help, when there is a way to prevent the criminal activity or the detriment that you're looking to solve through that law. The question here then is, in a liberal society, can you find a middle ground? Can, can you find a pragmatic ground that both prevents actual harassment but preserves fundamental freedoms, the freedoms that are the basis of a liberal democratic society, for those that say they want a liberal democratic society, right? And the European Convention and, and our, our legislation very much weights that we shouldn't be interfering with these fundamental rights of speech, assembly, etc. Um, particularly um, because we need to protect dem democracy and the democratic order. So I, I think it's a really illustrative moment that MPs, for the sake of, I think, primarily saying, I'm ideologically pro-choice, or I, I don't want to be seen as ideologically anti-choice or anti-abortion, I've been willing to throw some fundamental freedoms under the bus here in quite an alarming way. Um, yeah, that, that, that says something about where we are, the moment we're living in, in, in that sense. And also someone that's been involved in Westminster quite intensely for the last seven years and has been a very interested observer for the last 20, I think there's been a big shift within the two houses as to how much weight the argument has that this is just a bad law, guys. You know, and maybe I'm looking through rose-tinted sunglasses, you know, back 20, 25 years, but I seem to remember lots of debates where people would say, I like the intent here, but actually this law is terrible. And, and in this case, why this law should never have passed is to, to criminalise influencing. Like, what does that mean? There's no even attempt to, to be clear and accurate about what that, that phraseology means. And there are principles to good lawmaking, you know, where the law is clear, where it's um, consistent, where people can understand in a common sense way what it means. The laws that start talking about influencing being criminalised violate all those principles of good law in and of itself. So they violate, this violates liberal principles, it violates democratic principles, it violates principles of what good law is. And it's really concerning that MPs that, um, on that basis alone, didn't reject um, th th this clause in the bill. And they had an opportunity on Monday 
to vote for an amendment that would have said, hey, we can have buffer zones. Andrew Lua brought uh, an amendment, very sensible amendment. You've got your buffer zones. It, it will ban harassment, as the criminal law already did, by the way, Lee. Um, but for the sake of, for the sake of certainty, it, it shouldn't ban consensual conversation. It shouldn't ban things like silent prayer. And MPs didn't vote for that. So it's a really concerning moment. And I think it has all sorts of implications for, again, that question of if we're not in a liberal moment anymore, then where are we going, actually? Looking at the consensual conversation part mm. of this, uh, there was a BBC poll last year that said one in five women who have an abortion don't want to. Yes. Um, so these women approaching the abortion facility... Um, there's someone there like Isabel who can maybe offer mm. some support or offer another option and things like that. But mm. now that's completely not allowed. Even if the woman wants help, mm. she's not allowed to receive it. That's right. Is that working in favour of these women? No, we don't think it is. And um, people might not like um, the ideology or, or the religious practice of some of the people offering help to women. That's come, become very clear in a lot of the conversations and debate. Um, but we have hundreds of testimony that we've, we've seen and I've met a lot of the women that have received this help in the course of doing this work. Um, and I think a lot of people honestly, frankly, don't believe the number of women that would want this help and have received this help over the last decade, over the last 20 years. So I'll give an example of, of Ealing where the first PSPO came in. Um, the, the group there you know, can, can show hundreds of women that were helped from their presence on that site. Of 20 years of presence, we are one charge or arrest the whole time. When the police were asked, the head of the council bringing the local order there, are there, are there persistent problems with behavior on the site? The police said no. Uh, and we have proof of, of the help of these women. And what's really insidious again, a bit like influencing being such a broad term, the wording in the legislation that allows the local orders to be brought in is about quality of life. Again, without definition. Well, who am I or who are you or who is the local council to assess the impact of quality of life of a woman being able to have the child that she wants to have um, that she otherwise wouldn't be able to? How do you put a, a number or a measure on that? And how do you weigh that up against the fact that some women might not like the presence of someone that's religious to walk past on their way into the clinic? I think it's really dangerous territory that we would start wading into us deciding, qua council or qua state, which bit of quality of life outweighs the other, particularly when you're starting to criminalise otherwise peace, peaceful behaviour. And that's the opinion of these women that are just saying, like, hang on a minute, we should be able to have the choice of having that conversation if we want to. As long as that person isn't behaving in a criminal or offensive or, or super abusive way, it should be up to me to decide whether I want to engage with them. Like, women are smart, women are capable, women are resilient. Like, I as a woman, we hear from them saying, I want to make that choice. And while some women might not like the fact that she's clearly religious that's offering help, actually for me, because I'm religious, that makes me trust her more, for my part. And so, again, it does boil down to, do we really believe in a pluralistic society and a public square that is a, a, a typical public square that is the Western tradition or not? And the answer is increasingly no. We don't believe in choice if it's that choice. We're going to be liberal unless you want to do that thing. And it's carrying through in a way that's impacting, in this case, real women's lives. Some women who aren't on the welfare system because 
They were brought into the country illegally by men who control their, their life and are coercing them into an abortion. They have no recourse on the system to help. So for those women, and, and even just the, like I said before, the notion that we would start to censor the ability of people to offer accurate even information to each other is, is really insidious. And so we believe that women have a right to get that information if they want it and um, would be very surprised if there, there aren't challenges in the future along those grounds to these orders where women are saying, hang on a minute, I have a right to receive information, not just from the, the facility, that have a financial interest actually in me taking a certain decision. I should be able to have the right to receive accurate information from someone else if I choose to do so. Looking at it from another angle, the police are there to kind of enforce public order and, mm. and, and deal with kind of crimes and things like that. Six police officers turning up because Isabel had the wrong thoughts. It's hard to see whether that's a good use of police time. It, it's really tough, this, because clearly uh, the two arrests of Isabel were both unacceptable. In, 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 that she was arrested at all is unacceptable, but the manner in both cases was unacceptable. On the first instance, Isabel was arrested by, I think it was a couple of police officers, um, but they searched her in the street. I mean, that's the kind of thing you do if you suspect someone to actually be a danger to other people. She, that, this was a woman silently praying on her own <laughs> in the street, and, and she was searched in the street, not even back at the station. That's the kind of it's extraordinary behaviour. They searched her hair more than once in the street. I mean, this is quite extraordinary. In the bail condition she was given were that she couldn't basically have contact with a particular Catholic priest. I mean, they're the kind of bell conditions, again, you put on a terrorist or on someone that is abusing someone else in a regular way. You know, the, the police's approach to that first arrest was alarming and unacceptable. The second arrest, similarly, because, you know, we, we spoke to residents um, the, day, the day of the arrest who said, we've had serious robbery, we've had serious crime, we've had persistent issues in the local area, and we haven't been able to get the police to engage. And there's a woman stood silently praying, not bothering anyone, and six police officers all of a sudden are available to arrest her. That's not lost on the general public. And so the police could do themselves a bit of a favour here <laughs> by, by not you know, acting in, in this manner. On the flip side, I must say that I do feel for the police officers caught in the middle of this because um, although we don't believe that Isabel's actions broke the local order, um, I, I think it, it, it could be said that um, these laws are so fuzzy, so unacceptably fuzzy for all the reasons I've already discussed, that a police officer who's told that, you know, this woman is breaking the order, I can see why you might reasonably think in the moment, oh gosh, maybe, maybe she is breaking the local order. And I feel for police officers being increasingly stuck um, with laws like these local orders, like the new law that's going to criminalise influencing, like some of our other public order laws, um, where people being offended, they're being told they need to interpret offence as abuse, in effect. I do feel for police officers caught in these situations now, themselves, because whilst the police do overstep on a fairly regular basis, in, in the case of Isabel's arrest number one, I think they felt like they had no choice. Uh, as individual officers, which is a, a terrible position to be in, particularly if you individually recognise, as is often the case, you can see it on the faces, that this is ridiculous, actually. What's happening here is ridiculous. Um, and 
again, not to sound too extreme, but one of the ways that more totalitarian societies, less liberal societies, um, start to slowly um, start start to slowly spread culturally, is that people are consistently put in positions where they know it's wrong and unreasonable, and yet they have to go through with it anyway. And that little bit in you dies, <laughs> and that little bit of resistance to what is clearly wrong dies in order to be, to be part of the system. And culturally, the totalitarian shift starts to happen with people being stuck in those kind of situations, like many of our police officers are. And I think they felt it with COVID to some degree too at times, frankly. But today it's the abortion facilities, but tomorrow it could be another contested political issue where people are arrested for the wrong thoughts. It feels like quite a terrible precedent. Yes. What can be done to improve the situation? I, it's, I think the, the ultimate solution for a lot of our public order issues um, and this cultural shift towards um, laws that protect certain ideologies uh, at the expense of our traditional Western fundamental freedoms has to be um, new primary legislation that really makes clear that certain types of speech, expression and action are always going to be protected. Um, ultimately, I think that is the only medium to long-term solution. The courts aren't going to come and, and save the liberal order in and of themselves. They can only interpret what they get from the, from the legislative. The executive has shown itself as not having much of an appetite with this bill, for example, in stepping in, laying good amendments and whipping them as it could have. And so it really is going to be down to um, new primary legislation that makes clear, for example, that offence isn't abuse in the public square, whether we're talking about issues of gender or issues of abortion, whatever else might be controversial, frankly. Uh, Chinese diplomats being offended by Hong Kong, you know, protests near the embassy, whatever it might be, offence isn't abuse and that certain thresholds of language and behaviour have to be protected. Our tradition is that particularly issues that are of emotive or social concern or particular political concern, the tradition of the European Convention is to protect that kind of behaviour and speech more, not less. And what we found is our legislation, like we've had this week, is doing the opposite. So we just have to reverse that trend in primary legislation. And my belief is that an omnibus free speech bill is is the thing that is needed across online that's going to need fixing because the online safety bill is going to be a big issue, I think, in a similar way in the public square with regards to spe speech in the street. Um, and maybe even, again, depending on where this conversion therapy bill goes, even with regards to the home too and the private space, that could be under threat. So a free speech bill is the simple answer. And then the long term, uh, it, it's going to be training people for professions like being an MP or being in public office where they understand why the European Convention was written the way it was, why the Universal Declaration was written with a balance of rights that it was, and how far we've gone from that and what that can mean. Um, when you understand the pathway of societies going, going towards a more totalitarian uh, bent, you, you can see the signs much more quickly. And I do fear that a lot of people aren't able to read the signs right now. Again, we're in a great position compared to our brothers and sisters in lots of countries, mm. North Korea, whatever. But like we, we should be reading those signs of the times. And moving on to a different subject, we've currently got three candidates racing for the leadership of the Scottish National Party. 
one of whom is Kate Forbes. Mm -hmm. Uh, there's been quite an outcry in the media that her traditional Christian views aren't compatible with politics. Mm. So what are your thoughts on that? It's really interesting because I think it shows a, a, a kind of a, a willful, probably at times, constitutional ignorance about who can do what in what position. Um, Kate Forbes as First Minister, of course, has an awful lot of influence, but her private beliefs as a Christian don't automatically translate into policy and law, mm. particularly in a party that is incredibly progressive. <laughs> Let's be frank, like, her party would not have it if she said, you know what, we're going to start legislating according to, you know, conservative evangelical Christian morality. She knows that isn't going to wash. They know that isn't going to wash. That isn't how our constitutional settlement works. Um, and so I, I, do, I do think that it's either a bad faith engagement or it's ignorance. Um, and I hope it's ignorance rather than bad faith. Um, yeah, I think this, again, is a sign of, in a genuinely liberal democratic society, people would recognise that Kate Forbes is free to have those views, express those views publicly, and that you're capable of holding an office where those views can't affect what you do with it. And, and that is the way that our political system is set up. Um, you know, I've been privy here in Westminster... To, to you know, to be really pragmatic about it, to see that um, there have been times where prime ministers have wanted things from the civil service. Prime minister, the top of the executive here in Westminster, wanted certain things to happen that are absolutely within their power to do, and middle-ranking civil servants have stopped it. Never mind top-ranking civil servants and and um, other cabinet members. So the notion that someone who is a practicing Christian will somehow, you know. Um, change the nature of, of society, as is being implied here, is just nonsense, frankly. And it shows that we're, again, we're not in that liberal moment. You can believe whatever you want other than that. Uh, conservative Christianity, in, in the case of Kate, Kate Forbes. Um, and we see different responses to that. I don't know if you remember the furore with Tim Farron, who you know, left leadership of the Liberal Democrats. You know, his conclusion at the time was, you can't be a practicing Christian and be leader of a mainstream party now, mm. which is something I would disagree with him on. I mean, he's probably a better place than me to make that assessment. I don't believe it's true. Um, I think what happened there was Tim Farron wasn't clear and consistent in his beliefs, like Kate Forbes has been. She's kind of stood firm. I think what you find with this often is there's a bit of a media feeding frenzy, and they're looking for a show of weakness or acceptance that your view is somehow unacceptable to modern Britain. Um, and, and I think the, the counterpoint around the same time was the way that Jacob Rees-Mogg handled it. Again, I'm not being party political here, it's just individuals and how they handled it. Jacob Rees-Mogg was ambushed on Good Morning Britain, it's quite a famous YouTube video, and he was supposed to be talking about Brexit, he was asked about abortion and about his Catholic beliefs. And he was very open, he just said, sorry, I believe life is sacred from conception through, I'm a practicing Catholic. Are you, are you basically saying that you can't be a practicing Catholic and be in a senior cabinet position, is that what you're saying? And I think that is probably the defensive approach that is the most common and effective right now for the people of faith, is to appeal to what's left of the liberal tradition of, hang on a minute, I'm going to reverse this. Are you saying that people of certain faiths can't be in political office? Because it's kind of on you to justify that position, not on me to justify the fact that I'm a practicing Christian, which is a pretty mainstream view in society. Um, 
it's the biggest single block of belief that we have in this country that's a unified view. Are you saying that is beyond the pale somehow? And I think that's the moment we're in. Um, it doesn't get you very far, but it's that that's the defensive stance that appeals to the liberal tradition that we're seeing. I know there are other candidates, uh, all, all respect to him, but he's a practising Muslim and there doesn't seem to be the same worry that his viewers will, will affect his ability mm. to lead the party. Mm. Do you think Christianity gets kind of a, a rough ride? In- I don't know, honestly. It's really interesting, this. I, th- I think with, with the candidate in question, I think he's proved his progressive credentials. So for him in particular, he's passed some of the most controversial and been the hearts of the most controversial... Um, legislation and policy that the SNP's had with regards to, you know, hate speech laws um, and and parental rights related issues as well and and gender recognition. So he's been at the forefront of that. And so, if if Muslim belief in and of itself was a problem, he's proven himself to be the right kind of Muslim. Just as we're seeing um, people within the broad tent of the Church of England like the Jane Ozan, for example, who's very much on the progressive progressive end. She's the right kind of Christian for some of the media and for some of the more progressive people within Westminster and, and politics. And so I think it's what kind of what are you? You have very orthodox Jews in this country uh, who run schools who I think are have an incredibly hard time of it, frankly, right now. And then you have very liberal Jews who people wouldn't bat an eyelid over. I think the real way to see this, it's a bit like, is left and right a bit redundant now? I think um, whether the the nominal title Christian, Muslim, Jewish is also a little bit redundant in the sense of, are you with the new dogmas? Are you you in sync with the new liberal, secular dogmas um, in this post-liberal moment, or are you not? And the fact that you are... um, a Muslim or a Christian is kind of secondary to that primary way of seeing things, I think. On the Christianity versus other religions thing, more generally, I think people feel more comfortable critiquing Christianity because I think people feel more like they understand how it works and why it says what it says, even if they are quite ignorant of it at times. I've seen that often in the civil service. I've seen it often in the media. Um, But I think people feel like they know what Christianity is it's familiar and maybe breeds contempt because of that. With things like, you know, Islam and even to some extent Judaism, I think there's more commonly a sense of, I actually can't claim to understand how that works internally. And in that broadest sense, it's a bit more other. And therefore, I want to kind of respect the other, if that makes sense. Mm. When I speak to my Islamic friends, they think that Islam has a much harder ride than other religions in this country. So it's really interesting how those perspectives differ. And I think if I was to ask my Orthodox Jewish friends, they think they have it hardest right now. So, yeah, I don't know. I think the key lens is, do we have secular dogmas now that are inviolable to a certain portion of the, to the majority of the Westminster media establishment that create that national Overton window of acceptable opinion, basically? Uh, there's a lot of talk these days about like inclusivity, diversity. I know the Free Church of Scotland described what happened with Kate Forbes as anti-Christian intolerance. Mm. Um, why is there this kind of uh, pushback in society against religion being involved in, in civic society? Where did it come from? I think it comes from, actually, it comes from um, 
funnily enough, we're talking about whether it, people will want to defend what's left of the liberal order now. But the roots of it come from um, the philosophy, the liberal philosophy that's made the modern, the modern West more what it is. You think about the the assumptions and, and the refounding of, of France, you know, post-Napoleon. You think about the assumptions at the heart of the American project with the Constitution. This very modern liberal notion that I, as an autonomous individual, have freedom, unless there's a very good reason to interfere with that freedom, then, then I have it. That being a kind of, an implicit at least, even if not always explicit, kind of highest mantra for the liberal era I think that's still there. I think that notion that I, as an individual, shouldn't have anything that even suggests what I do is wrong is, has grown in strength and, and power over the last 150 years. And so you have that old-school kind of liberal notion that you shouldn't be interfering with me alongside a post-Christian, in my view, um, intolerance for people um, not believing the right thing. And so what that's done is created a combination of I should both be free to do whatever I want with the least impediment possible, along with even if you have a belief system that implies that what I want to do is not correct or good, then that's seriously offensive and unacceptable to me. So we have both um, a liberal route and we have a kind of new puritanical intolerance combining, mm -hmm. which means that people of traditional morality systems like Christianity or Islam or Judaism are seen necessarily as hateful because they, they have a, a moral black and white system that goes before my individual desires and feelings and experience. That's unacceptable. That cannot be tolerated and it must, must be removed. And so that's why I think that, that I think that's the root and I think that's the current tension that we have right now. The organisation also does work on the free speech in universities. Can you talk to us a bit about that? Yeah, um, we, in lots of the areas that we've discussed on, discussed about today, Lee, the biggest issue is not actually usually the law, although the, the one passed this week is a, is a stinker. Um, it's not usually the law, it's actually practice and policy and guidance, right? Um, so often the law's okay, but the way it's interpreted or the way that professional guidance is delivered is bad, particularly to HR departments and companies or, in some cases, universities. The law on freedom of speech on campus is actually quite good. Um, not only do universities have to abide by, you know, respect the freedoms we all have around speech that we have in this country more generally, but universities have a positive duty imposed on them by the Education Act for them to take all reasonably practicable steps to ensure that people are free to speak and assemble and to hold events. So it isn't just a passive respect, they have to positively assist. But what we found in practice is, again, in particular, where speech, speakers or societies are trying to speak of or hold events about or, or be the kind of people that might be seen to be in intention with the current secular dogmas, then the student unions or the university apparatus of, of whichever part, all of a sudden start to suppress in practice those groups or that event or that speech or that message. Right. And obviously you see that particular on controversial issues like the one we mentioned, beginning of life related issues, issues like Israel and Palestine, 
like issues around Islamophobia prevent extremism. Th these key tension points are the areas where we see the most censorship happening in practice. And again, um, Christian Christians hoping to affiliate. And so, in practice, what we what we find is that student unions in universities are actually discriminating on a fairly regular basis against people that hold more controversial views in denying student societies the ability to affiliate, to hold events, etc., use the same facilities and services. And behind the scenes, most of the time, we win those cases very quietly because the law isn't bad. But the bad practice in and of itself creates a chilling effect. Students know that if they hold a certain line academically, they're less likely to get support from their supervisor. They know they're less likely to get a first rather than a 2-1. They know they're less likely to be um, approved for the certain committee as a junior academic. They know that's what's actually happening here. Um, students know that if they um, are, let's say, Christian and pro-life to use one of the hardest spaces to be in, that the student union is likely to try and shut down their event, stop them having a freshers' fair stall, etc., etc. And what that does is it has that chilling effect on practice, that that minority view is less likely to be aired. And so what we find is a lot of the work that organisations like us have to do is to say to people, no, your legal rights are quite strong, actually. It's practised by the university and the SU that's, that's bad most of the time. And we're here, if you need us, too. Um, the good news is there's a, there's a new bill going through Parliament. It's been way too long delayed that will strengthen students' rights to take a case against the university on the basis that the university is suppressing their free speech rights in and of itself. And that is a really welcome step forward. Um, again, universities sadly understand a, a legal letter a lot better than they understand an informal situation where students are saying, hang on a minute, this is unreasonable, surely this is discriminatory. Sadly, in our experience, it usually takes university lawyers to get involved to say, hang on a minute, what you're doing here isn't acceptable and you're losing court if you keep doing it. And so um, along with um, uh, strengthened powers of enforcement for the Office of Students and other regulatory bodies, this new bill should make, it, um, should make universities and student unions more wary of behaviour that is clearly discriminatory towards minority views. Where the campus is, where our students are, if students are, therefore their society goes, basically. And we're talking about the cultural shift towards a less liberal and more totalitarian type of society. Well, one of the key ways that will happen is that in the place where you're supposed to be most exploring new ideas, debating, putting your head above the parapet, that students are being taught and trained to be people that keep quiet for the sake of fitting in. And, and for the sake of the system. And if you're doing that in your 20s, you, you're gonna do it in the workplace too. And, and, and their society goes. And so it's, this is, I'm really glad you've mentioned this because this is one of the key cultural um, Petri dishes for, for where we're gonna be in 50 years. We need to get it right. Right, Christopher, thank you for joining us on British Thought Leaders. Pleasure.